I remember studying history in high school and being introduced to the concept of political cartoons. I'm sure you're all familiar with the cartoons that appear in our newspapers or online. The cartoonist portrays countries or individuals or situations in a jarring way in order to get a particular point across. But I remember studying one cartoon in particular. Uh, here it is. It looks very old because it is very old. Uh, I'm getting to the age where not only have I studied history, but I've become a part of history too. It was a cartoon addressing Britain's return of Hong Kong to China in 1997. You'll remember that Hong Kong was a British colony for many years, all the way from 1841 in fact, but eventually the British agreed to hand it back to the Chinese government in 1997. And it was a very uncertain time. Leading up to the takeover, there was a mass emigration. Over half a million people left Hong Kong, fearing an erosion of civil rights, the rule of law, and a downturn in their quality of life. And so at some point during that time, this cartoon came out, and it shows a great red dragon about to devour the city of Hong Kong. Now, I know that in the 1990s, the residents of Hong Kong did not look out of their windows and see an enormous red dragon, but I do know that the residents of Hong Kong felt a great red dragon, and that by portraying China in this way, it described the atmosphere in Hong Kong in a way that mere words in a book or an article could not have done. Now, last week in Revelation chapter 12, we read how the Apostle John described Satan as an enormous red dragon who wages war against the people of God. And now in chapter 13, we discover that Satan doesn't do this directly, but rather he fights against God's people through two agents who John describes as two beasts or monsters one coming from the sea and the other coming from the land. Let's have a look. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast, Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's man's number. His number is 666. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Many people think that the book of Revelation is a crystal ball, a way to look into the future. But the Canadian pastor, Daryl Johnson, points out that actually it is a discipleship manual. John writes this letter to the seven churches of Asia to tell Christians there how to stand for Jesus even in the face of persecution and death. It's a book about discipleship, about following the Lord Jesus Christ, even through the valley of the shadow of death. The images that John uses may seem perplexing to us, maybe even frightening, but John's readers would have understood exactly what John was talking about. These early Christians were under threat from two great powers, There was the power of the state, the beast from the sea, and the power of false religion, the beast from the land. And John wants his readers and us to understand that actually behind these powers lies an even greater power, the power of the dragon, of Satan himself. But these verses are not just for John's readers, they are for Christians of all time, You notice again the reference to 42 months, a symbolic uh, number that speaks about the entire period between Christ's first coming and his final return. John wants us to know that the dragon continues his work through these two powers today, right up until the time that Jesus returns. And so these verses are for us. Let's look at these two beasts one at a time before looking at three responses that John calls us to. 
So firstly, Satan attacks God's people through the power of the state, the beast from the sea. Verses 1 to 10, John begins by saying, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, how do we know that this beast represents the power of the state? Well, as we've seen many times in this study, John is expecting that we will have read our Bibles. And back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts that come up out of the sea. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a fourth beast with ten horns. And Daniel is told that these beasts represent kingdoms and that the horns represent rulers. Most scholars identify these as Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. John's beast includes elements from all four of these other beasts that Daniel sees, almost as if this beast is all of the bad elements of the other beasts all rolled into one. We also know that John is speaking about state power because later on in the book we are introduced to this beast again. We really need to read Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17 together. There in that chapter, John sees a woman who is sat on a scarlet beast that is covered with blasphemous names and has seven heads and ten horns. It's the same beast. And the angel tells John, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other one has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So the imagery is quite fluid here. The heads of the beast are seven hills, which are also seven kings, and the beast himself is an eighth king. But I think you get the point. We're dealing here with state power, with political power. Now, please understand that the state itself is not intrinsically evil. There are many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, who distrust the government and want nothing to do with it and try to escape the state's power over them and even to undermine it when they can. But in Romans chapter 13, Paul points out that the state is one of God's good gifts to us. If you think it's bad to live under a human government, go to places in our world like Syria where there is no human government, where all governance has broken down and it's total anarchy. No, the state is God's good gift to us. Uh, four times in that passage, Paul speaks about those who govern as being God's servants. But states become beast-like when they reject God and they set themselves up as God instead. And behind states that do that is the dragon, Satan. That's shown to us visually by the beast having the same seven heads and ten horns that the dragon has. And also it's stated in verse 4 where we read the men worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. So the beast is state power that is inspired by Satan to usurp the place of God himself. 
Now, in John's day, that was the Roman Empire. In fact, the seven hills in chapter 17 is a clear reference to Rome that was famously built on seven hills. In verse 2, we're told that on each of the beast's seven heads, there is a blasphemous name. And in verse 5, we're told the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. John is writing, remember, when the Roman Caesars are being worshipped as divine. The current emperor is Domitian, who has taken the title Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. You can't get more blasphemous than that. So John is referring to the Roman Empire of his day, but he also looks beyond Rome, both backwards and forwards, to other kings and empires too. In verse 3 we read, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Now you can't really have a fatal wound that is healed, But again, this image is explained more clearly in chapter 17, where the angel tells John, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. In other words, one of the main characteristics of this beast, of God opposing state power, is that it keeps on coming back again and again and again. That just when you think it's dead, it returns. Think of World War I. It was called the war to end all wars. But then came World War II. After World War II, people thought that that was it. We know better now. The United Nations was formed, whose charter begins, we the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. And yet how many wars have there not been since World War II? And right now our planet teeters on the brink of World War III. And part of the horror and the distress and the helplessness that we feel over the war in Ukraine right now is that we cannot believe it is happening again in our day. That despair and helplessness, in fact, is reflected in verse 4, where men ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Who can stand up against these tyrants? What can be done to ensure that this never happens again? You just get rid of one tyrant and another comes in his place. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Nikolai Ceausescu, Leopold of Belgium. I mean, in the Philippines in 1986, they finally got rid of the dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, and this week, his son has been elected president. The beast keeps on coming again and again and again. What we see here in picture form in Revelation 13 is something that John tells us in writing in 1 John chapter 3. There John writes... Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. There have been and there will be many beasts or Antichrists. They keep on coming and coming and coming. 
before the coming of the final Antichrist. And Christians in particular suffer when the state raises itself above God. In verse 6 we read that the beast opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Which is interesting. Last week in chapter 12 we read that believers overcome the dragon. Now we read that the beast conquers them, which is true. Well, it's both. The dragon conquers the saints, yet through their deaths they overcome him, just as the Lord Jesus, through his death, overcame Satan. I think it's fairly easy to identify individuals and nation-states who become beast-like, and demand total allegiance above the one true God. But I think there's a broader identification of this beast too. Christopher Wright is a British pastor and theologian, and he describes how the beast exists in the ideology of societies like our own. Let me read to you what he said. We are increasingly seeing the ideology of a kind of anti-religion, an aggressive atheism and secularism which is determined to squeeze Christians out of the public arena and to do so under the very attractive idea of equality. Interestingly, taking a value which comes from the Christian faith itself and turning it against Christians. And saying in the words of verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, if you want to do business in our public space, then you have to play by our rules and our version of ethics, not by your own conscience. And so we end up with a curious kind of totalitolerance in which we must all tolerate everything and everybody, no matter what they think or do or believe. And anyone who isn't willing to tolerate everything will not be tolerated in our society any longer. And so people suffer. I wouldn't yet call it persecution on anything like the scale of other countries, and yet we see people who've lost their livelihoods, lost permission to do business, lost their license, lost their profession, lost their jobs. And there is this irony that a state which in itself is good, which is God-given, which honors rights and freedoms, many of those coming to us as a result of the gospel itself, can be the perpetrator of an ideology that denies the very things that it was founded on. The power of the state that raises itself above God and demands an allegiance that is due to God alone and tries to get rid of God and his word from their society. But let's move on to the beast that comes from the land. The power of false religion, verses 11 to 18. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Now how do we know that this second beast represents the power of false religion? Well, partly because of the description of him that we'll look at in a moment, but also because again John speaks about this second beast later on in the book. 
In chapters 16 and 19 and 20, John describes the dragon and these two beasts, and each time he refers to them in the same way. He speaks about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This second beast is the false prophet who represents the power of false religion. Notice importantly what he looks like. He looks like a lamb. In other words, this beast gave the impression of being like Christ, even being on the side of Christ. This is not the false beliefs of other religions, but rather false religion as it can be found among the very people of God. Jesus himself warned us, Matthew chapter 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now, we looked at this before in chapters 2 and 3, but just to say again that no church or denomination or Christian organization has ever moved from orthodoxy to heresy overnight. It's always the slow and gentle slide from truth to error. There was a big outcry in America last month because a mother in Pennsylvania wanted to start an after-school satanic club at a local school. Now, of course, that is awful. But the main threat to the Christian faith in terms of false prophecy does not come from the satanic club. It comes through very respectable, well-dressed, attractive, articulate preachers and teachers who are extremely nice and who quote the Bible. You could be listening to one of them right now, especially the attractive and well-dressed part. We'll come back to this in a moment, but these verses warn us against uncritically accepting everything that has the label Christian. To borrow some words from the Lord of the Rings, not everything that glitters is gold. Satan comes as a lamb, not a dragon. We read in verse 12 that he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So here we have the power of false religion giving legitimacy to the power of the state, supporting the state and getting men and women to believe the ideology of the state and doing so in fairly spectacular ways, verse 13. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. In John's day, the religion that gave power to the state was what we call the imperial cult. That is, the temples where the emperor was worshipped and the priests and the other leaders who led the worship services. And we know from history that these religious leaders often used trickery in their worship. 
They used hidden pulleys to make the statues move, or they used ventriloquism to make the statues speak. They used false lighting. They may even have drawn on the power of the demonic. But false religion wasn't just found in paganism. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, we found false apostles in the church in Ephesus, Nicolaitans and Balaamites in Pergamum, and a false prophetess in the church at Thyatira. And one of the things that they had in common was their theology of compromise. They said it was possible to follow Jesus and still live by the values and the systems of the society around them. And folks, since John's time, there have been many instances of religion giving support and legitimacy to the state and thereby becoming false religion, sometimes overtly. Think of the German evangelical church that supported Hitler and his Third Reich, as opposed to the confessing church led by Bonhoeffer and others who opposed Hitler and paid for that with their lives. Think of our own country, where some sections of the church preached a version of the gospel that sought to legitimize and support apartheid. But there are more subtle and therefore more dangerous instances of this too. Whenever the church supports an ideology that raises man above God, there you have false religion. A gospel that says, come to Jesus and he will meet all of your needs and make you prosperous and happy. God exists to meet your needs is not very different from the secular American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whenever the church values the things that the world values rather than the things that God values or takes its methods from the world, rather than from God's word, or relies on the world's power rather than on God's power. There you have false religion. And notice that according to verse 13, popularity and success and growth and even miracles do not guarantee that a church is founded on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, we read, The beast also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Now, this is not a literal mark. John describes the mark of the beast in the same way he described the seal of the lamb back in chapter 7. Remember that those who follow the lamb are marked on their foreheads with his seal of ownership. And we'll see in chapter 14 that this is the name of the Lord Jesus and the name of his Father. It's a symbolic phrase. Christians do not literally have the name of Jesus written on their foreheads, but they are his due to their allegiance to him. Here we read about a group who are marked by their buying into the values of a world supported by a religious ideology that has rejected God and put themselves in his place. The inability to buy or sell without the mark could be a reference to the coinage of John's day. Remember Jesus answering the question about paying taxes and asking the question, whose image is on this coin? And the answer is Caesar's, 
you couldn't buy or sell without recognizing Caesar. And his name, or the number of his name, the infamous 666, well, I've discovered that no end of ink has been spilled on this question. I think that out of the many suggestions that are made, there are two possibilities that make a lot of sense. The first solution is to say that John is using a technique called gematria to give his readers a name of a person in code. So in Hebrew and Greek, you didn't have a separate number system. Instead, you used the letters of the alphabet as numbers, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, etc. And because of that, then, you could make a number out of a name. So, for example, there's a very famous piece of graffiti that's come down to us from this time. I love her whose number is 514. In English, I, Andrew Parker, love her whose number is 55. M equals 13, I equals 9, C equals 3, etc. Now, it's easy to make names into numbers. It's not so easy to make numbers back into names because there are all sorts of names you can get out of the number 55 or 514 or 666. It's probable that John is referring to Caesar Nero at this point. If you transliterate Nero's Greek name into Hebrew and do the gematria, his name comes out as 666. And you'll notice that your Bible has a footnote to say that some manuscripts have the number of the beast as being 616. And if you take Nero's Latin name and translate it into Hebrew, it comes out as 616. It's a possibility. It's not completely uh, neat. Uh, John expects his readers to go from Latin to Greek to Hebrew and to fudge some letters along the way. A second possibility is that John is playing with the number seven that we've found many times in the book. You'll remember that seven is the number of divine perfection. Seven days of creation, for example. Completeness, wholeness. Here in this chapter, we are introduced to the dragon and the beast and the false prophet who form a kind of unholy counterfeit trinity who at several points try to mimic God. The beast who once was, now is not, and is to come. Isn't that very similar to he who was and is and is to come? We read here about the beast having power over every nation, tribe, and tongue in direct opposition to the throne of God where before the Lamb everyone bows down from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. And yet while these three characters attempt to lay hold of God's power and sovereignty and throne, They always fail. Despite their pretensions, they are not God, and they always fall short. Six rather than seven, three times over, failure upon failure upon failure. Well, having looked at all of this, the power of the state, the power of false religion, what should be our response to what John has told us in this chapter? Certainly not fear. John calls for something else. You may have picked up as we read through this passage that twice in these verses, John calls for something. In verse 10, he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And in verse 18, he says, this calls for wisdom. 
First, this calls for endurance. John is writing to men and women who've already been through the terrible persecution that took place under the Emperor Nero and who are now about to go through the horrific persecution of the Emperor Domitian. And he calls them to endurance. What does this mean? Verse 9, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance. In other words, the church, you and I, do not escape the wrath of Satan. We don't actually have a choice. We're all going to receive someone's mark and we're all going to face someone's wrath. Either we receive the mark of the Lamb and face Satan's wrath, or we receive the mark of the beast and face the wrath of the Lamb. But you're going to receive someone's mark and you're going to face someone's wrath. If we truly seek to follow Jesus, it will lead to suffering and death, as he told us. And as Pastor John Stott once pointed out, doubtless if we compromised less, we would suffer more. This calls for endurance. Second, this calls for faithfulness. Remember the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna back in chapter 2. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. One writer points out that it takes great faith to believe that God is at work and God is winning when you're being maligned and killed. It's faithfulness to God, but also faith in God. Faith is that firm trust that knows that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes, Romans 8. And the acceptance of persecution gives proof of the genuineness of our faith and the unshakability of our hope in Christ. And third, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. John isn't speaking here about wisdom to figure out the number of the beast. I think that that is the least important of the things that he wants us to understand from these verses. No, he's talking about discernment. Wisdom and insight into how to live out my life in this world. And the passage challenges me to take a long, hard look inside and ask myself some difficult questions. In terms of the power of the state, do I have attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, values that are more aligned to the world than to God and his word? Are there parts of my own life that I have elevated above God? Do I love the world and the things of this world? Or do I have an eternal perspective? Do I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Am I just focused on working hard enough to get my kids through high school and university and having enough left over for a comfortable retirement? Or is my mind set on things above where Christ is? seated at the right hand of God. In terms of the power of false religion, am I soaking myself in God's word, reading all of it over and over again, so that when something comes along that is not in keeping with God's word, I know instinctively that it cannot be true. 
Am I praying that God's Holy Spirit will guide me into all truth? Am I in community with others who have a deep commitment to God's word, engaging God's word with others who can keep me accountable? Am I following the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, going away from the sermon each week and carefully examining the scriptures to see if what my pastor said was true? Am I doing some of the hard work getting out the commentaries and the theological textbooks? Do I find that God's word always comforts me or does it sometimes contradict me? Do my times of prayer consist of me telling God what I think he should do or waiting quietly in his presence to receive instruction? Am I interested more in success or more in faithfulness? One writer has pointed out that the word worship is used five times in this passage. Of course, it's used in relation to the dragon and the beasts. But in fact, at heart, this is a passage about worship. Who deserves my worship? Who deserves my allegiance? Who deserves my heart? Why worship anything which is not God? Surely my heart My life needs to be dedicated to the one who gave his life for me. And no matter what I face this coming week, I should remain faithful to him who endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that I should not grow weary and lose heart. Therefore, to God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be ascribed all the praise, all the honor, all the worship, all the glory, all the power and all the majesty, now and forevermore. Amen.